your old pal, the Crypt Sweeper. I'm just like the Crypt Keeper, but a little bit more proactive with dusting. <laughs> I've been mopping around all week just waiting for this new disgusting episode of Death by DVD. <laughs> Month October 2021, Death by DVD's Monster Meltdown. A different monster movie from throughout the ages, every week for your listening displeasure. <laughs> We sweep and creep our way into this week's episode. <laughs> I like to call this one Slimey Situations. This is Death by DVD. Monster Month continues with an out-of-this-world space movie. I'm Hank the World's Greatest, and he's mean. He's green. He was born on an asteroid. It's I, Alexander Nash. Green Slime! It's the funkiest theme song we've ever done for a movie, and that's the only reason I wanted to talk about this movie at all. It's the opening theme song. The Green Slime. We enter the 1960s with our exploration of monsters throughout the era, celebrating Halloween 2021. This is... I don't know what to say about this movie. It's entertaining, it's fun, it's got green slime in it, it's a Japanese knockoff of American sci-fi movies whilst also somehow maintaining and being an Italian knockoff of Japanese and American science fiction movies. It's got weird rubber monsters. It arguably might be the greatest slime-based movie next to the stuff. When in doubt, when you don't know what to say, just scream out, Green Slime! We began Monster Month with The Creature from the Black Lagoon, a pretty tame episode and a pretty tame movie. I think a good way to introduce things. He's green, he's slimy, everybody loves him. Now we continue on. It looks like we have a theme. With green and slimy. Yeah, green and slimy things. That, oh, weird, fuck, that actually might continue for the entirety. That's the whole theme. It's green and slimy. Well, this movie I first saw on television. It was, I don't know if it was part of a Halloween thing, but, it, I mean, it used to play, like, on... Stuff like Commander USA's groovy movie, you know, just kind of uh, run of the mill local uh, horror show type stuff. And I watched it and I always really got down with it and loved it. I have never taken it particularly seriously because of the 1960s kind of funky, groovy nature of everything. But it is a pretty, for the most part, a fairly tight movie and now i'm saying that I, I i'm thinking more about it okay it does meander over the place quite a lot in places it's a little ridiculous but it meanders but at the same time I, it's funny i kind of wanted to bring this up at some point throughout the show also it does have a very sturdy plot compared to a lot of modern science fiction movies and uh not just science fiction but modern space movies in general there's not a lot of consistency like 
fire somehow burns in space and nobody pays attention to gravity whatsoever. But when you focus on the plot and how elaborate it gets, like, this monster really is like no other. Because it starts as a green slime, which really wouldn't consist of a monster movie, but slowly transforms into a weird Japanese drama. There's a name for them. I can't remember what it is. Tokusatsu, live-action Japanese dramas. So uh, they would still be monster-based, but obviously they're live-action compared to animated. I, I feel I shouldn't have had to explain that, but it's killing time. Well, I mean, this is kind of a bridge for me of kaiju-type movies, you know, your, your Godzilla-type stuff, your giant monster movies. And when Japan started shifting more to stuff like, I don't know, like Inframan and, like you know, just doing rubber suit monster movies that didn't necessarily have to have miniatures surrounding them. And this is kind of that bridge of guys in rubber suits acting, you know, albeit very goofy, but with a pretty tight premise on what we're trying to do. And this was kind of Japan's entry into doing uh, kind of a, an American science fiction film, a space movie. And this is also the era in the 1960s because we're kind of doing monster movies from different eras this is not the first one by any means but um this is part of a long lineage of especially with american science fiction and horror films of getting into like going to space and what's out in space and space aliens you know like phantom planet forbidden forbidden planet there's another one <laughs> all the planet movies something like this that was parodied in amazon women um, on the moon it, it's much like that where we had an idea about what space was going to be throughout the 50s and 60s, and they made a lot of movies about it. But by this time in 1968, is when we finally made it to the moon landing. One and kind of what we thought was plausible past that point of space stations and uh, being able to do things in space. Because really, this movie is half Armageddon and half rubber space monster. So it's kind of a, a perfect blend of uh, kind of genres there, kind of an action movie at first, kind of into, or kind of a science fiction movie to an action movie to a uh, kind of a horror theme thriller all at once. And interestingly enough, this is the second production from a famed and historic Toei studio, the first one being Terror Beneath the Sea, which is a very similar movie and more or less is a creature from the Black Lagoon knockoff, but what if an evil scientist was making gill men that were also cyborgs, and it stars Sonny Chiba? You can't even fail with a synopsis like that. Then they ended up doing The Green Slime, and The Green Slime itself is an unofficial fifth sequel to an Antonio Margretti Italian space knockoff series. So you enter the mix with this, and the only things that share similarities is the space station Alexander Nash was just discussing and how goofy it looks is called Gamma 3, or as they say in the movie, Gamma 3, and everything in Margretti's series was Gamma 1. So it was an extension of an extension of a knockoff of a knockoff, and then capitalizing on even what Nash has just said about the space race in that different era, the beginning of the movie, I think, has something really unique that when they're talking to the space station, it's from Cape Kennedy. And that that's Cape Canaveral, but after President Kennedy was shot in the fucking head, 
Jackie thought it would be a nice nod to maybe change the name of Cape Canaveral to Cape Kennedy. And something about this story, I think, is absolutely fucking hysterical, but also horrible. They did. They changed it to Cape Kennedy, and this is one of the very few films that you will hear it be addressed as such. But the people of Cape Canaveral were so upset by the name being changed that they got together and voted against it. And the Kennedy family obliged and decided, sure, I guess you guys live there. Fuck Jack, right? Fuck that guy. Got shot in the fucking head. All they wanted, he got us to space. I mean, this is a long, lengthy rant about the United States, but fuck <laughs> that guy. And I just, I, that was my favorite part of research throughout this movie of, huh, I wonder why they don't call it Cape Kennedy anymore. And looking this up, it just seems that the people of Canaveral, Florida unanimously decided, yeah, fuck that guy. I don't give a fuck. Do you give a fuck? No. And that's the story of why Cape Kennedy is no longer called that. Sorry. Oh, see, I always thought it was because, um, you know, when it was Cape Kennedy, people just kind of like drowned and no one would help them. No, that's in Massachusetts. That only oh, happens. Oh, I got the yeah. stories all mixed up. Yeah, when Kennedys go driving in Massachusetts, that tends to happen. Or was it? Where is the Kippaquidditch? Fuck. God damn it. Is that even <laughs> how you call it? Dude, speed away from this reference, much how you would run from, you know, a drowning passenger and get away from what we're talking about. What Green Slime does have more than anything is adorability it is a fucking adorable film the monster suits adorable the spacesuits adorable the miniatures adorable it's just it all is very homey to me and it feels very american even though like the entire crew was japanese most of the actors were uh from you know they were international actors they were either you know americans italians uh you know from Mostly, you know, European places. I think, honestly, aside from the leads, everyone else that you see as an extra were English-speaking people living in the area at the time, and I don't know how many of them were actually really actors. I think they kind of just pulled, like, you're a white guy, get get here, get in this movie, we got some money for you. Uh, which, obviously, you could check IMDb and see if these facts are true or not, but I like my version more. They do succeed on in making it a... Uh, pretty like American feeling film, although it does have a twinge to it. it does have something that feels slightly off. And I think a lot of that is it very much is in a Japanese style. And if you take it back to older uh, Japanese films, this film has a feeling that's akin to something like Prince of Space or Invasion of the Neptune Men. It there was a very like kind of rich history of kind of weird sci fi movies coming out of Japan. And it, this film feels like a cross between those and an American sci-fi film. I mean, the director, uh, what's the director's name again, Hank? Kenji Fukasaku. Yes, who went on to direct uh, Message from Space, Battle Royale, which that's the fun feels fact completely the different than Green Slime. But all these films have like so, like a feeling to them. There's a very Japanese feeling to them. And that mixed with the American sensibility of a sci-fi film is just kind of an interesting um, decoupage of uh, different film identities. And that's really kind of what gives it a, a little bit more of a kitschy feel. And I think a lot of that has to do with how the miniatures are handled, how the design is handled, because um, you could even take something like Green Slime and see its influences on things later, like uh, the Japanese show that became uh, fucking Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. All those things, they all have a similar feel to them. I think when you imagine a 1960s science fiction horror movie, a monster movie, the visuals that come to mind might not be directly from the green slime, but a lot of people think of 
terrible models. You have that Ed Wood syndrome of being able to see the fishing line holding something up. Uh, not particularly well made, but something that brings back a very like Americana-ish, a very childhood-like memory. And of course, if you like grew up in fucking Wales, you'd have no idea what Americana is. And uh, I, I mean like a, a sensible feeling of your, your home, the, the doors unlocked, a safe Sunday night, a bowl of popcorn, watching something goofy on television that's name you'll never remember, something like that. And you sit down and you focus and you end up watching the green slime. As we were saying at the beginning of the show, it's a, a, a really fucking coherent story and it's a really intriguing story what happens and it, it, it begins with this whole idea that an asteroid, a real one for that matter the Flora Asteroid Flora? Yeah, yeah. Flora. the Flora Asteroid is going to it's gotten off its balance and it's going to collide with the Earth and these astronauts have to go save the day and, and blow the motherfucker up and throughout that they get infected with the green slime and it, whatever That's uh, it, it's so similar to even stories like Alien um, Vampire Planet. What What's that Mario Bava movie? It's not called Vampire. Planet, Planet. of the Vampires. Yeah, yeah Pl- Vampire Planet sounds like a fucking Rob Zombie music, uh, a Rob Zombie song. Planet of the Vampires by Mario Bava. Very, very typical, usual plot. And I think what ends up helping this is, for the most part, especially in the 60s and 70s, Japanese films and Japanese writers were incredibly clever that there is always something based in science, even Godzilla itself. It has something about eco-terrorism and how awful using and testing nuclear weapons on the world is. And what makes this such an interesting and fun movie to go through is how, I don't want to say dense, but it is kind of a dense plot because we have green slime that turns into these crazy kind of kaiju, wiggly-armed monsters that can heal themselves and shoot electricity. And you go from point A to point B so quickly... But at the same time, it's clever. It's not just some dumb bullshit thrown in your face. Yeah, they got on board and it gestates and it gets bigger, which that's alien. Something happens and then we get to another point, somebody dies, and then there's a fucking thing on board. There's not really any education or backstory here. And to me, I feel it is the benefit of Kenji Fukasaku and being a Japanese production it's much more clever than the average Italian knockoff or the American space movie, for that matter. Most of those were going from point A to point B, like I had just been ranting about. This itself makes the movie something you can watch. No matter how goofy it is, no matter how erector-set childlike the prompts and everything in the background is, it's like, damn, I can appreciate the fact that there's some sort of cleverness behind all of this. The science, as kind of fantastic as it may be at times, feels somewhat grounded in a form of reality and more to the American uh, sci-fi films of the era, the, the space movies that, you know, that like the Ed Wood stuff, the, the, the wooden wall sets, they just kind of made up space travel as they went. Cause they didn't really have a lot of information. And this film feels more like it's based in what could be described as actual science. Um, it's not, but you know, I mean, Suspension of disbelief is everything. I mean, I don't want to give too much credit to this movie, but it is kind of unique that the the whole Gamma 3 space station, it does kind of look like the International Space Station. It, it wasn't that far off from what, I mean, the thing... Except for the gravity bit. Yeah, and it, off, it doesn't twirl and rotate to keep itself going. There is no gravity in this movie, though. There's a scene where they're fighting in space and somebody throws their fucking gun at the alien. It, it, which is maybe my favorite part of the movie because it hits the alien like dead in the eye. It's great. <laughs> and that, I do think the uh, the monsters themselves are very cute. They um, can be somewhat menacing because in no way, shape, or way or form are they like human in nature, but 
they have the one big red eye that's set inside of a kind of oddly, disgustingly weepy vagina thing. <laughs> and uh, it's like song, kind of like a, it? it's almost like the grimace, but green and boily with tentacles that shoot sparks. Yeah, they scream like little electric crying children also. I think that's the most unsettling thing is that every time they appear, it's like when the creature from the Black Lagoon appears, you've got that dun-dun-dun trumpet that obnoxiously plays throughout the movie as it also obnoxiously plays throughout last week's episode. I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. It's something along the lines of like how Piranha uses that swarming noise for the Piranha that like bodes like this horrible thing coming. Hmm. That sounds exactly like what Hank just said. It's the same thing with the green slime. Once you hear that noise, I mean, it, it's key to be scared that there's this mass forming around you and, you know, you don't have much hope of living. So you, you keep hearing these noises. It's not just like kind of plain generic, like dinosaur growls and, you know, a lion growl like sped down. It has its own unique kind of flavor and sound to it, uh, which can be. Uh, somewhat irritating in a good way. And I don't mean like, God damn, I can't wait for these things to shut up. It's more of like a menace, this menacing sound. Yeah, it almost kind of, dare I say, has a, a feeling somewhat similar to like Ramirez's Night of the Living Dead that also came out in 1968. Because there's something really horrifying about these ghouls, the zombies, that they, they move so slowly, but they get up on you. There's more than one of them. It's like you're being gang jumped. There's nothing you could do about it. And although this is much, I don't want to say tackier, but kitsch, that's a better term, kitschier than Night of the Living Dead, there are some sequences that I think are really fucking terrifying in this movie. Like, there's a doctor character, and there's this big swarming scene toward the end of the film where everybody has to get from point A to point B, and they're going to blow up the place to get rid of all these creatures. And we haven't even explained the evolution of the creatures. We'll get there in a little bit. But this doctor gets left behind, and everybody has to open the door to get him out, and when they show him, I mean, I would, talking about Ramiro, I would say this is maybe even more graphic violence than what you see in Night of the Living Dead, that you've got this, like, really horrific postulating, you know, they've used condoms and put it on his face and balloons and it's moving and he's gray, he's been electrocuted and he lets out this horrifying scream. There's a lot of bloodletting in this movie when people are attacked, people fall from different levels of the spaceship and splat and hits the ground. The because there's gravity on the spaceship. Yeah, maybe they have some sort of special gravity clothes or gravity boots or something like that. The aliens bleed a lot of ooey-gooey green blood. I think it's really visceral and graphic, but even though it has this level of violence, it's not like... Uh, it's not disturbing it's violence. It's a G-rated film, I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it shows blood red, but it's like a Mad Magazine level of violence. There's something that... You can still feel horrified, like the sequence I was just describing. It's graphic, it's really scary, but it's like a William Castle level of scary. I, I like my reference. It's like Mad Magazine when they do a parody of it. You can just hear when somebody hits the ground some big, crazy splunk noise or something exasperating for Mad. And when we do introduce the green slime that's on the uh, the asteroid that's headed, or the meteor that's headed for the, uh, the Earth, it can be somewhat menacing because it's just, you know, just kind of a snotty textured thing that is kind of constantly kind of popping up and growing uh, on the astronauts. And you think that, you know, they may be safe getting off this asteroid, but, you know, they carry it home with them almost like a disease. And, I mean, I'd say that's the base of what the uh, initial fear for uh, the filmmakers was on this one is to take the idea of a traveling virus that, can grow and expand almost like, you know, like an amoeba that just keeps prolificating and prolificating these single celled organisms that become, 
you know, horrifying creatures that multiply to attack. I mean, there's something really unique about how it grows, though, because you're watching this really, and, and I'm just saying you watch this movie now for the first time, you've obviously seen something like Alien. And, you know, the whole issue with that movie is they broke protocol. If they'd have waited 24 hours, then the whole problem with Kane would have happened in the fucking waiting pod or the waiting room. I don't know what it's called. Decontamination? Yeah, that that sounds correct. This movie has something kind of similar. So you watch it, you're understanding what's going on. There's a great stringent cause for following protocol. And the very first thing that happens is the following of protocol fucks everybody else over. Our lead character says, all right. When we get back to the spaceship, I don't just want you guys to go through decontamination one time. I want this done three times. I want to make sure everybody's absolutely clean. But unfortunately, because of that, it puts out a great source of energy. And we learn here something. And I think this is the, the, the really interesting thing about this movie that makes it such an intriguing thing to watch and go through is our creatures don't evolve by eating people or, or feasting on their flesh or their brains or something like that. They evolve from stealing their energy. They can electrocute people to death once they're grown to full size and steal their energy. But at this point, why they were attracted to the astronauts' equipment and them themselves was feeding off of it and growing. So decontaminating them three times allowed them to get enough energy that it turns into this kind of kaiju, wiggly monster, googly-armed... What did you call it? A weeping vagina? That sounds like something McLovin would have said in uh, Superbad. Weeping vagina. And that's... It sounds terrible. Now I'm like, I'm saying it out loud and I'm like, well, this fucking, what, who are you selling this to? A child? Nobody wants to watch this movie, <laughs> but it really is what to me, like you're, I guess it, it, this is one of those goddamn things that you're trying to explain to somebody and it's like, well, you got to fucking see it to believe it, man. But it really does benefit you to watch the beginning of this movie and you see these props, these plastic children's toys that are hanging on fishing line and you immediately are rolling your eyes and you're like, I'm not gonna be able to finish this this is just this is below me this is fucking some cheap 60s science fiction and then they slowly release this electricity plot how the green slime grows into a monster and for me that's what brought me into it of like well goddamn all right get your weird kids toy guns and like the the space suits are like police helmets there's no way they're breathing in space they're made out of cotton there's <laughs> there's no defense from zero gravity whatsoever but somehow you get like 20, 30 minutes into the movie, once they get off the asteroid, I think definitely you kind of start believing in the magic of film. There's a lot of disbelief, and yes, everything is cheap, the props are cheap, the costumes are cheap, the monsters are just weird, wiggly monsters. It looks like something that you'd find at a party city. But there's something about how the story was written and the intricacy of itself where you can push that aside and actually believe in the movie of like, well, yeah, they're fucking in space. Maybe they got some sort of fancy space boots that ignore gravity and, and you just let it go i think what is is fun about the green slime is as an adult watching it you somehow manage to slip back into a childlike place and suspend disbelief you can play imagination you can really play make-believe with this movie and it turns out at the end to be kind of fun i don't think the green slime whatsoever is a waste of time if you want something, especially during October, spooky season as they're calling it now. This is a great Halloween movie. This is, a, I think, a rewarding Halloween movie with popcorn and your friends or with fucking children. Anyone can watch this. 
Well, it's a great time capsule movie for the era because you get a little bit of everything and it's in startling color. Look at the poster artwork, uh, you know, look it up on Google and see kind of how amazingly it looks like a pulp novel, like what the advertising was like for a film like this. Uh, what the final product is the the funky theme song, the 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 dancing, uh, like when they're celebrating blowing up the asteroid, everybody's doing like some kooky ass 60s dances. And it's kind of really nice to go back and visit a time period that I'm not familiar with. I wasn't alive at the time, but I can go back and appreciate that time period by watching something as kooky as this movie. And I think that's something what generationally we're kind of missing is. When I was growing up, like I knew, I mean, yeah, I was a weird kid and shit, but like I knew who like Milton Berle was because it was just part of culture. Like cartoons were only on on Saturdays for me. So I had to watch adult shows. I had, I grew up watching like Cheers and like, you know, three channel television. And now with like most children watch cartoons up until they're like 10 years old. And that's all they watch is just cartoon, cartoon, because you have a, you know, just a variety of everything to watch at any point in your life you want to watch. So they don't know stuff from other generations quite as well, like from the 80s, 70s, 60s. It's just all that's all old stuff. But you really need to go back to appreciate some of this old stuff like Green Slime and really get into kind of the vibe of all of it and see where evolution has happened in film from different cultures, from, say, like a, a Japan-American co-production to even just American films at the time, even uh English films because English films of the 60s have a completely different vibe and tone to them like because uh, me and Hank have been kind of dipping in and out of watching uh, Hammer House of Horrors the, the TV show from the 70s the vibe of that show is strictly on the era it was made and that's kind of what makes it great because a lot of the scares in that show are you know they're not mind bending it doesn't get particularly violent or anything but it's the ideas that are present it's the acting it's the accents it's the it's Brian Cox with an odd mullet. Uh, there's a lot of different things in the show that make it interesting and can still be frightening in this era as opposed to, you know, just getting so locked into modern horror or just modern science fiction. Because all like for the most part, modern science fiction is as science based as it comes um, and exploring different concepts. But. I find so many modern science fiction films boring as all shit because they are so reality-based and you don't get so fantastical with it or phantasmagoric. You lose a lot of that wonder into servicing just, you know, science and where science is heading. And it just, I find that less interesting. You know, because... I mean, have, you, uh, have you seen Life? Jake, Jake Jellybeans in space? That one wasn't bad. It was a pretty decent little film, but at the same time, it was very much based in reality. Oh, and that's, that's where I'm kind of going with this, that I couldn't help but think while watching The Green Slime, wow, this kind of reminds me of that movie Life, and what I, I tend to, and I'll admit, I watched Life on a flight, so it's not like I was highly fucking paying attention the entire way through, but... It had. It's not like they draw a massive comparison between the movies themselves either. But there is something so similar about the aspect and something that comes from Green Slime that, just like Alien, it's borrowed and used so consistently, and it almost feels familial when you watch a movie like this because you're used to the plot, you're used to the story. Like you were just saying, when it comes to Green Slime and the the intricate nature of where it comes from and how it's made, I think what makes it so enjoyable is the fact that it is a Japanese film. And this is something I really appreciate, and I love watching Giallo. I love Italian films that take place in New York City and were filmed in Rome 
uh, no one speaks English whatsoever on set, and it's all poorly dubbed. This idea, this gesture of what Americans are like, what American action heroes are like, and if anything, I think this movie is more of a pleasant compliment uh, and better than what most American action and science fiction and, and monster films of the late 60s were turning out to be, which is no offense to, like, H.G. Lewis, Roger Corman, maybe a little bit of offense to Andy Milligan, because it's Andy Milligan. Um, there's guys like Al Adamson. Everyone was doing their own thing, and there was a great deal of uh, different production values, different type of movies. Milligan was only making weird 18th century period pieces for some fucking insane reason. Oh, because he was absolutely and utterly and totally insane. And then you have something like this on the table that I think even adults in 1968 that watched this could have some reminiscent memory of things like Buck Rogers and, and their childhood of crazy serials with poor production value. And I really think it comes down to being a Japanese film trying to actually do that. I think almost the point of the movie is to go into your nostalgia to try and be as American as possible. And they took so many things from the forties and the thirties and American serials that it, it ends up complimenting the movie so entirely that it's a better production than, you know, the big studio a pictures, which I don't, I mean, there weren't really studio a pictures making monster movies. And in the late sixties, your space studio a pictures were 2001, a space odyssey. Death by DVD will return after a brief commercial break. Oh, I wish there was something I could use to get rid of these wrinkles. The bags under my eyes are awful. I've tried everything and it's all just a big gimmick. Oh, have you tried green slime? I saw a commercial for it the other day. Green slime? That sounds like it's something for kids. Oh no, honey. It's supposed to be revitalizing and energizing and they say it's from space. Space? Now I know you just must be joking me. It's no joke. Green Slime is out of this world. For real. From the stuff of stars. Originally found on an asteroid, scientists worked night and day until they turned this star stuff into a revitalizing and energizing beauty product that's only $99.95. The results are electrifying. Green slime zaps the wrinkles right off. Here, you try some. Rub it on your face. Yeah, that's right. Rub it in. Rub it on your face. Oh my god, yeah, rub it in. Rub it in. Oh, it's so green and so cold. I'm feeling just a little uncomfortable. It, it, it is burning. It's burning. Oh my God, it's burning. You, you really need to get it off me. Oh, it's, it's burning. 
Green Slime. It will electrify and revitalize. Green Slime. It'll zap the wrinkles right off. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh, her face, her face is melting off. Her face is melting off. Oh my god. Just rub a little bit of green slime, patent pending, on in the morning to zap away those wrinkles. New from Deathco, Green Slime. Green slime has not been approved or evaluated by the FDA. Green slime is known to cause, in some cases, a smelting electrical shock and diarrhea. Coming soon to a store near you. Open the door, you find the secret. You find the answer is This is the part where we probably need to talk about how there are two versions of the green slime, the Japanese version, the American version. And the only real big difference is the American version has a very prolonged uh, love story of Guy's ex-girlfriend is on space station. She's engaged to the commander on the space station. Guy goes into space, tries to steal girl back. Her fiance dies, he does steal girl back, and that's the entire premise. And the Japanese version that is completely eliminated, and it's just strictly focusing on, you know, the, the danger of the alien presence on the ship. And um, the love story bit, I get, I don't know if it's valuable to anything in the plot. I mean, it it adds that kind of quaint um, American feel to it. And that's of, the most uh, thing it does. It's the most American thing about the movie. And he doesn't even try and steal her back. It's compl everything's incidental. He ends up just surviving. So it's like he's kind of he's trying to get her back. Come on. He's trying to one up the other guy. I feel more or less than anything. But her character, why I don't like the love plot, and I've I've not gotten to see the Japanese version. I'd like to see it with all this cut out because I think it's kind of boring. Because her character doesn't doesn't offer anything. There's one sequence with her and Robert Horton's commander Jack Rankin where they are he's wounded and they're in a nursing station and they have a discussion about what's going on. And then it immediately turns to danger and she's a side character that's just helping people out. There's not if anything the romance is between. Vince Elliott, played by Richard Jekyll, and that falls short. There's no point to it. If we'd have just focused on, and it's not like there's a problem. Last week, you had brought up if there was one complaint to be had with the creature from the Black Lagoon, it's that aside from the underwater photography, it's a, it can be a little boring with its shots, and that does come down to it being a 3D movie, so my pointless complaint when it comes to the green slime is, yeah, the love plot does nothing. I would have wanted more green slime. We have a movie called Green Slime and you're focusing on love. More green slime. More green slime. Well, a lot of that is Hollywood. That is how Hollywood made movies back in the day. You'd always have to have a romance angle for the women because women can't appreciate science fiction because of their simple minds and they need to think about Having babies and staying at home, men need to worry about the menace of the slime. I don't, like, it's fucking space and all the women are still basically in skirts. It's bringing up and going back to something that you've talked about and made notion of several times here, just almost the quaint nature of 
this being a Japanese movie, and this is how other people look and see our culture. We have to add this in, and that's why it's not in the Japanese version. We got to do that for the Americans. We got to put this angle in. And not just it being something negative toward women that we were discussing. Oh, they're all nurses, and all of them, all of them are almost in skirts. I think it's almost like bringing up American culture, like an incel angle. If we don't put in something sexual for the men, if we don't have some sort of submissive women angle for the men, then it's just not going to sell. And you had brought up that it's a very American thing to have this kind of romance, and it's but it's always the same sort of thing. Like, man falls for woman, woman falls for man, back and forth. And it's senseless to the plot aside from, well, we have to add something extra, and I really think it comes more to we got to entertain the, the dumb nature and sexuality of men. We're still having that conversation to this day because you have like two different camps. You have a more progressive camp that is just like, no, like women need to have their own voice in cinema. They like, they need to be calling the shots on a lot of their characters. And, but you know, and then you have the other side of it who are talking about Marvel movies and talking about how like the costume wasn't revealing enough. Her comic book costume looks like this and her her giant anime tits are peeking out and she's wearing a thong all the time. So why can't we put that in a movie? Eh, maybe because it's slightly a little bit degrading and maybe a woman doesn't want to walk around like that and like do action fight scenes. Here's something for you in the audience to do if you want to have some fun and, and look at fandoms and men in general. Go check out the Cowboy Bebop hashtag on Twitter. Oh God, that controversy is so fucking stupid. <laughs> it's one of the most morose and ignorant things I've ever seen over a fictional character because she's not revealing enough and busty enough because of, what, 40-year-olds that jerked off to this when they were a teen? You're ruining my childhood. You're literally ruining my childhood because Faye Valentine's tits aren't big enough for you? Good God damn, your childhood was already ruined. I'm, I'm here to fucking tell you, you might have not had a childhood. Fucking go to the park. Go outside. Do something else. Stop using Twitter. I just, I, I just the discourse itself. I have. I don't know why any man is having a fucking online argument about like this woman character used to be incredibly sexualized, and I think we should keep it that way because that's what I mean. That's what it was, and that's what it should always be is an overly sexualized character. It's like, well, can't we just change that slightly? And like maybe make it a little bit more palatable for uh, different kinds of audiences, uh, female audiences and of that. No, nah, fuck it. I, I just she needs to look exactly how she looked in 1995 when it was created. Oh, fuck off with that shit. God damn it. Back when I was a boy, cartoons had big old titties. And if you're going to make that damn near cartoon with big old titties into a movie, then where's some big old titties? What does it have to do with absolutely anything? And that takes us back to the green slime with what the fuck does the love story have to do with the goddamn movie? Which this was a pretty interesting segue because it, it kind of harkens more to my point that more so often than not, it's American movies have a deep romantic point for absolutely no reason. And of course, like, yes, I've seen a French film before. Okay, I'm not fucking bringing that up. There's a whole, there's a whole big difference between a romantic fucking French neo-noir or whatever to the green slime or bringing up the idea of absolute sexualization of everything in the United States. Like, everybody knew I was going to bring this up at some point. I went and saw the fucking Mini Saints in Newark because I'm a big Sopranos fan. It's something that is ridiculous throughout the entirety of the show. There's a lot of sexuality. There's a lot of fucking. But there is 
arguably more fucking in that movie than there's violence. Why? Well, it sells. That's that's it has nothing to do with the plot. You get to see a bunch of characters that you might have heard of moderately in a seven-year television show. Fucking people. What does this have to do with the green slime? What does it have to do with the fucking romance? I can tell you everybody's name, but the chick. I have no idea who she is. She's a doctor. I don't. I think she's the only one that's a doctor and not a nurse. It's probably something Italian or something Japanese. And the problem with that is they don't develop her character. There's nothing to offer. She's just somebody. There's no exquisite sex scene. There's no fucking in this movie. But we develop Jack Rankin. He's the commander that's come on board. And then we have the former commander, Vince Elliott. We know that these guys have a relationship. We spend all this time focusing on them. Yeah, but there's a woman and maybe they like her. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. And if you just fucking cut all of that out of the movie, then you end up having a fairly decent, dare I say, learned science fiction movie that's completely based in reality, but it's still goofy and lighthearted enough that you can feel like a kid watching it. So I, I would, I feel I would deeply prefer the Japanese version. I think slimming it well, down. I mean, the reason that's put in there, I mean, at the time period, it was trying to somewhat pander to a female audience of what female a female audience needs a love story in there. And largely what they're doing is uh, in like retrospect is pandering to a male audience of having a love interest and a prize to win at the end. And that's what she is literally in this film is a prize for the, the victor, the male victor to, to gain once they've survived the, the scourge of the green slime so what they thought were pan was pandering to women, honestly, is largely more along the lines of something that's a little bit more sexist because it is coming from a male perspective, aiming it to a female female perspective, which ends up being sexist. So I mean, that's I mean, what happens, especially in like 1968. Not always, but I mean, when you try to do a lot of love angles in action films, it's just it came off as very pandering and not particularly appreciated by women. I'm not a woman, though. Ask one of them. It's kind of trivial, and I think that's what, what damages the... <laughs> we're now actually going to get into talking about the film. Like It damages the film of the green slime. There's nothing that's... Ne it's neither here nor fucking there. I think it really is lethargic, this whole love plot going back and forth. And what makes it lethargic is that it's pointless. It's business. It's busy work. Yeah, it's something to do that maybe they just... And, like, we were talking a couple episodes ago about 4K restorations of movies and when it comes to, like, James Cameron's Aliens... There's eight guys in those suits. I don't want to see that there's eight guys in those suits. So we have a love plot in this movie because there was like four dudes sweating to death playing these monsters and they had to cut them some slack. They had to film something else. This was the longest segue about there being two fucking cuts of this movie. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, but it's representative of um, a dying era at this point in 1968 because this is also the same year that Night of the Living Dead came out, and if you ask me, fucking changed everything in, in horror films specifically. Um, it really made a hard turn to being hyper-serious and hyper-horrific because not long after this, like maybe six years after this, you get, I mean, there's been stuff in between, but you get Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you get something like Jaws, and you get Halloween, and horror became serious. It wasn't all like space goofery and nonsense. It got into hardcore fear 
Well, what changed the game was 2001 A Space Odyssey that also came out in 1968. So this ultra-cheap shot-on fishing line movie came out in the same year. George Romero's equally very cheap movie came out. And then Stanley fucking Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. And to capitalize on what you were just saying, a few years after that, you've got Dark Star, John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon, the precursor to Alien in the beginning of both of their film careers. Well, not John Carpenter's. He had technically already won a fucking Academy Award at that point. Dan O'Bannon's most certainly. He had made a movie called Attack of the Killer Chicken, or was it Attack of the 50-Foot Chicken? One, one of the two. He wasn't as successful. They made their entire movie because of 2001 A Space Odyssey, but you can tell that there is clearly some sort of... Not just homage to the era that we're discussing currently and the film we're discussing currently and uh, the, the whole beach ball monster is very akin to something that you would see in the green slime. But 2001 A Space Odyssey, you've got Ramiro on one spectrum and I think that really changed the idea of horror and that changed things for independent people and people that were going out there and working like Ramiro did with what he called his family and crews that he could trust. But then Stanley Kubrick just like... Stanley Kubrick and this... Some people, I think, could consider it a insult, and I kind of mean it as one, and other people might consider it a really great statement. But in 1968, Stanley Kubrick was like J.J. Abrams, and that's pretty much the same shit that J.J. Abrams prides himself on now. Look at the state, uh, James Cameron could be a reference to. Look at what I created. Look at all the stuff I did. The technology was never around before, and I went out of my way, and I did all this foddy outy awesome fucking stuff, and I'm amazing. Nobody's ever done something like this. Kubrick was a very conceited person, and 2001 A Space Odyssey clearly, I think even to this day, is one of the most decadent, over-the-top, insane space movies. Uh, the effects itself, all in-house, all real things, era way before CGI, is hard to compete with. It's haunting. And I, I've said this a few times before, but I'm not really a Stanley Kubrick guy. I don't, I get his vision, but I like uh, Barry Lyndon. You know, if that says anything about me and Stanley Kubrick, I like Lolita. Kinda. I don't, anybody that actually likes Lolita, there's something fucking wrong with you, but I like his translation of making that movie as uncomfortable as trying to read that book and very, very unpleasant. Something the remake, I think, drastically missed. But Kubrick blew the fucking world away with what he did. There was no way of ever changing it. The only way to compete with something that huge was to make it as kitschy and sticky as possible. I'm like, look at Star Wars. It's about a Lord Fauntleroy robot and a little guy that beeps following around a fucking samurai on his quests. All of this comes from this goofy, kitschy nature of the green slime and this multicultural aspect of let's make an American movie and not one fucking American's involved in it. Well, this was also kind of the end of the glossy, glamorous space film because in the 70s it started like morphing and evolving into what eventually became Alien, which is industrialized space where it's dark, um, very much uh, about pipes and just, you know, kind of really stripped down design work. And it's not like but and we we've kind of gotten away from that in more recent um, science fiction films. It's all about you know brightness and touch screens and all you know like the majesty of space. And we've kind of lost that dark, gritty fucking Ridley Scott space. So we've kind of pushed it back over to the 1950s and 1960s of space films and making uh, space seem more magical than 
alien did, which made it feel more like a job or, you know, just like you're on like it's truckers in space. So, I mean, it's less a lot less blue collar now and a lot more elitist space. Uh, can we bring in marks into space films? <laughs> I mean, even bring up truckers in space. Look at what Stuart Gordon did with truckers in space. He managed to take this industrialized Dan O'Bannon esque H.R. Geiger, very dark, very wet-looking future, this this post-apocalyptic cyberpunk future, and he returned it to something like The Green Slime. Space Truckers is a very goofy, silly movie. They fucking are shipping square pigs because it's easier to ship and grow square fucking pigs. The whole movie is based in ludicrous nature, and it's often talked about so poorly, but it comes from a very thoughtful and warm place. I think especially looking at the man that directed it, it, it does come from... I've used this term before, and I know it's kind of inclusatory toward an American audience, but Americana, there's something very kitschy about movies like this. And what's even more unique, like Stuart Gordon aside and Space Truckers aside, this entire film, I think what really, and I I said this at the beginning of the goddamn show, what makes it 100% the most enjoyable thing is it's another culture looking in, and it's this idea of, well, this is what the Americans would do. This is how it would be done. Uh, even mentioning Cape Kennedy. I'm surprised there weren't hot dogs or something like that in the movie. The way they dance, the way that other people look at our culture. I'm sure people could find that offensive. But to me, I, I think it adds a beautiful layer to the movie. And it's it's I mentioned this also earlier. One of the reasons I love Giallo so much is you've got these movies shot in Rome that are supposed to take place in New York because they've done one long shot of the Twin Towers. And it's this... Other cultures' idea of how we act and how we operate. Everybody drinks J&B scotch and smokes Marlboro Reds, and they all wear bell bottoms. It's very independent of its time period and magazines, TV, the musicians that were popular. And I think it works so well for this movie. And and Alexander Nash has said this a few times. It's a time capsule piece, and it's I'm I fucking you know was very very busy in the 1960s running a cult out in Death Valley, and I wasn't watching a lot of TV, but. It's something that I can at least feel a little bit of romance to. Like there have been other versions of something like this made throughout the years, but they never really did so well. Like think about the 1980s Flash Gordon movie, which is incredibly loud visually. I mean, it's very bright. Everything is very Flash. bright. The, the, the space uh. is very much about colors and um, like pushing the visuals in your face. And I can see that having something in common with something like Green Slime, which is a lot of the same way of making space look so kind of art deco. And that's something that I think simultaneously was missing from the 80s um, space films, but also helped some of the 1980s space films. Because you have stuff like um, the Titan Find, uh, William Malone's Creature, which if you would have tried to make a Flash Gordon sort of situation out of that it wouldn't work half as well as what the final product is which is it's just an alien ripoff film but it does have a certain feel to it and it does defy its budget by taking it into that industrial space air like you know space look and um i think we're probably not going to get back to that we're going to probably end up sticking to um you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, where, you know, it's all kind of Jack Kirby work, where space is, you know, it's fun. very colorful, very bright, um, and very, I will use the term again, because no one use it, uses it anymore at all, phantasmagorical. 
Well, you've got things in like the 1990s, like Species, that has a lot of elements from something like the Green Slime and Borrows and has a lot of elements from something like Alien. But that was during that, let's make everything fast-paced in Los Angeles and everything shot on hand camera and it's all so real. Then you've got things like The Astronaut's Wife with Johnny Depp and Charlize Theron, something too that you could even liken to... The green slime bringing back the entity, people becoming infected with this entity, this weird thing that you can't figure out. A very dark, drab, it's like the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. It's all based in realism, but it's also space, and they came back from space. Isn't that fascinating? No. We want weird, shiny chrome things and gadgets that make odd noises. I don't care if it's hanging on a piece of fishing line. If you can actually write something that turns out to be enthralling, and even with the, as we spent 20 minutes discussing, boring love plot, this movie manages to be more entertaining to me than something like Life. Unfortunately, killing Ryan Reynolds was the, oh, spoiler, by the way, dumbest thing you could have done in that movie. He was the only fucking character that was entertaining. Jake Jellybean just whined the whole time. I don't care about that. Give me Ryan Reynolds. He at least makes jokes. He's at least fucking entertaining and personable. Life was okay. I watched it on a flight. I think I said that already. Wasn't three stars. Yeah, all it's right. all right. The the time capsule nature of the film is probably what you need to go in expecting of what what you're going to appreciate of it. Don't come in expecting like just amazing acting, great special effects. Um, although the um, the, the green slime on the outside of the space station is cute as fuck. You can't convince me otherwise. Um, uh, it reminded me of those little pencil toys, those little toppers that oh, yeah. you would get back in elementary school. They are adorable. And I uh, something that is hard to stress, though, is, if, you know, obviously if you weren't around the 1960s, you won't have any sort of kinship to this. And I think if you are a certain type of horror fan... The level of appreciation is the fact that you're seeing something like this, and some people just want to see everything, is what I mean by a certain type of horror fan, that you can look at things as stringently as you want to, you can try and judge and rate things, but you go back and you find something like this, uh, this is way before movies that are so similar to it, you can't help but wonder... And have to acknowledge, especially because the director was it was a very well-known director, he ended up doing the uh, Japanese scenes for Tora Tora Tora, which what, Akira Kurosawa dropped out of doing that. So 1968, two years later, he's doing major productions like that. Two or three of his films I know made it up to judgment for the Academy Awards, but I don't think he actually had anything that came that forward. It's somebody that's incredibly skilled, and it's like we've discussed with Lucio Fulci before, a lot of his early work were romantic comedies, comedies, westerns, uh, science fiction movies in general before he got into deep-seated horror. You get a job, you go out and you do it. What you can appreciate is the fact that the artist behind that gave enough shit to do a good job even though they were literally using fishing line to make the movie. Yeah, and you just you largely have to look past all that and just kind of enjoy the work that's presented to you. Not everything's going to be a CGI goo fest. It's I mean, this is like handmade film. Everything in it is handmade. There are no like vi- like some laser um, visuals later, but everything else is either miniatures or sets or you know it's there's a certain amount of artistry that goes into all this and go into it appreciating the artistry of what they accomplished uh, with like spray painting paper towel rolls and bullshit like that of, of making something that can defy your expectations. It may not be a hundred percent, you know, a serious film. You're going to go, wow, 
that was a really well-made film and it had an intense sense of mise-en-scene. Uh, no, you're not going to come out that. You're going to come out going, <laughs> that was fun as shit. And that is really what you need to like go into Green Slime like wanting to appreciate is just really having fun with a movie. Well, there's so many people, especially in our era, that haven't been able to go to a midnight movie, that you've not stood in line and watched eight movies at a shitty fucking theater somewhere. You've not gotten to go to a drive-in. Sitting at home in your basement, this is the closest you could get to a drive-in experience, just watching a movie of this ridiculous nature. It's cheap, it's fun, sometimes it's exasperating with its story, but it's still rewarding by the time you get to the end of it, and I think what fits with the theme we're trying to keep this Halloween on Death by DVD with our Monster Month celebrating October 2021, is that the year? What year is this? I don't know. This movie is straight up... Pizza, two beers, an edible, and a blunt. And that is your night of just sitting back and really just kicking back. You don't even have to like do drugs for this. I I mean this is a like like going old school, this is a couple jolt colas and donuts. Like this is a movie that you can pig out to and have fun. You can get screwed up and watch this movie. You could drink, you could smoke. Not that we advise doing anything like that, because our lawyers tell us we have to stop telling people it's okay to do drugs on this program. I think what makes the green slime itself is it's just enjoyable. It's a Saturday morning matinee, man. That's, I mean, specifically what it is. Well, it's such a questionable thing to say, but it's a good movie. Uh, For everything it lacks, it ends up making up with some way or another, and if I dare say you don't make it to the end of this movie and enjoy yourself, you're a goddamn sociopath. It's just fun. It's a shitty way to, to do a review and call a movie fun, and we make fun of doing that all the time. But really, it's something that you can watch in your PJs. You can drink chocolate milk. You can drink a Guinness. You could smoke crack to it. Probably shouldn't, but you can have fun regardless of however you take the green slime from the music that I, Alexander Nash, is so fond of, and I am too, because it's pretty fucking fantastic, to the nature of the movie. It's one of those things that imposes itself so much being goofy you can't help but enjoy the ride you're taking on. And it really is, I think, a, a very 1960s. I think it really works for what we've wanted to do presenting monster movies throughout the years because you have something. My first idea, I said to Nash, was let's do Night of the Living Dead. Let's just do a big fucking long-winded episode about Night of the Living Dead, which is something that we've done in the past, on the live era, we've talked about Romero before. We're obviously very big fans of the man's work and his philosophy. We have a show entirely about his philosophy. What well, It doesn't offer anything. And I, I Nash picked the green slime, and at first I was a little like, oh, God, I don't know about this. And I this is something I watched maybe four times this week because I ended up enjoying myself doing it so much that it, it, really, rema- it really made me remember being a kid and cowboy pajamas watching things like this at one or two in the morning when everyone had fallen asleep and I could sneak down and watch television it made me feel it it made me remember what being a horror fan is about the joy of watching something like this and just taking it in no matter how bad it is and having a good time because I think at the root of what all of us love when it comes to watching movies and horror movies is at one point we had a good time doing it and we're always chasing that kind of nostalgic good time feeling so hopefully this episode might bring you to watching the green slime and you could have that same feeling i don't know i mentioned smoking crack earlier that could be the problem i (laughs) i have no idea sometimes i don't even know what i'm saying 
But we will continue Monster Month on the next episode of Death by DVD. We're moving into the 1970s and the 1980s with a double feature. It's going to be a gobblingly good time. That's the worst fucking reference I've ever made before. If you figure that out, two thumbs to you. The ashtray is full, two thumbs to you. Is that a weird, like, Roman emperor reference? I don't know. Two thumbs up? I'm sorry. The ashtray's full. And the bottle is empty. Green slime! Green slime! of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem. Sentinel Remix by Linus Fitness Center. Find them and follow them on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Instagram today.